Our mission at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. Uh, we are going to continue in our study through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this the action of the church. Because that is exactly what the first century church was about. And so if you brought your Bible, open to Acts 15. We're going to start, look, start in verse 35 and go all the way to 16.5. And a sermon I'm calling, it's all about the gospel. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they were two men. They were all about the gospel. And we've been waking our way through the, the New Testament book of Acts, which details everything the first century church was doing and how they were all about the gospel. You see, Christ, he founded the church and gave his church, the church, his church, its marching order when he said this in Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always. Well, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, we looked at this a few weeks ago. That is uh, where these two men, Paul and Barnes, they took that, that charge, that mission that Jesus gave very, very seriously. And when they went on the very first mission trip covering 1,600 miles, and they did that to tell people about Jesus. Here's the deal. I hope you recognize this. Paul and Barnabas didn't hear Jesus' words firsthand. They weren't there when Jesus said that these, these, this, these words that, that we've studied and heard so many times. They weren't there. Now, I imagine that they probably heard it secondhand from the disciples that were there, but they also knew that that is the only logical conclusion that someone can have after having a personal experience with Jesus Christ, is that we would be all about the gospel, right? That, that, that if you are signed, sealed, and delivered from hell to heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ, the only logical conclusion that anybody could have is you go and tell others this great news. That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did. In fact, they're willing to cover 1,600 miles, a lot of it on foot to go tell people about Jesus. So they took that charge seriously, but you know they were, and maybe you're thinking, well, they're also influenced by the third member of the Trinity. That's kind of a big deal. Let's read about that in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Think about that church service. They're, they're worshiping, they're, they're fasting, they're having this powerful church experience. And we'll say fasting, not something we're all too good at in the Baptist church. We don't practice that a lot. Um, but anyways, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. So question. Ask yourself this, how does God speak to you today? How does God speak to you? Uh, he speaks to us through, the, through His Word. He speaks to us through godly counsel. And He speaks to, through, to us through the circumstances of life. But I want us to know this. When God speaks, we're to respond in obedience. When God says go, we, we, we try to go and go where He sends us. When He says give, we try to figure out, well, how much can I afford to give? When God says speak, we start trying to figure out whom he, um, we're supposed to speak to. And when God says jump, we say how high because he's the Lord. That's what we're to do. And so the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Ministry is God's work. It's, it's done in God's time and it's done for God's purpose. And so if God's going to call you, he's going to equip you. And he said, set apart for me. 
I hope you recognize, maybe you're not fully equipped yet, but if you are obedient, if you go when God says go, then he's going to equip you as you go if you're being obedient. Well, the church in Antioch, that's where believers were called Christians for the very first time. And, and, and First Baptist Antioch, not the church's real name, I like to call it that. They're the sending church. They are, they're starting this church planting movement. And then Paul and Barnabas, they're the first missionary dynamic duo. They're the, the dynamic duo that is paving the way for the good news of the gospel to, to explode over the, west, the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, journal, uh, journals everything that happened during this trip. Well, Barnabas, he is a native of Cyprus. He's, he's known as the encourager. He's generous with his resources. If we were to back up to Acts chapter 4, we'd read how he had some land, but yet he sold it. He gave the money to the apostles to help the people in need. And then Acts chapter 11 tells us that, that Barnabas is a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. That's the first member of this dynamic duo. Then there's also Paul. And he's Jewish and Roman. He has dual citizenship. He speaks multiple languages. He has this brilliant mind. He's converted from Judaism and he's steeped in the Old Testament. And these are the two men that that the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me for the work which I have called them. You see, God called these men for a very specific work and that work was missions. Missions is where we go to a place that doesn't know Jesus, where these people have never heard the gospel, and we share the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith. That is the message, that Jesus died in our place for our sins. He rose on the third day, and then when there are believers that profess Jesus as Savior and Lord, we plant a church. That's missions. Well, the book of Acts, we see churches planting churches. There's been someone that has said is that the mission of missions is the church, and the mission of the church is missions. So the church and missions, they really go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Missions is where we help people that are lost come to know Jesus Christ. That's the end game. And that mission of helping people find Jesus, that has, been, has, has already been declared by Jesus Christ. We're not going to come together and have a meeting and and take a vote. What should this church be about? Because Jesus already gave us the mission of the church. Missions are the very heartbeat of God. And there's been somebody that said, oh yeah, all you Christians, all you want to do is you want to come to a place and make the whole world see the world like you do. Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. That's That's our mission. We want to go to a lost world and let lost people know they're lost. But there's a great God who has gone to hell and back so they don't have to be lost. Hudson Taylor, he was a famous missionary. He once asked a man with one leg who is applying to be a missionary in China. He said, do you think you can be a missionary on one leg? And the man said, well, I don't see too many men with two legs going. Yeah, touche. <laughs> Maybe you're a person that can't cross the, street, the sea, but I'll tell you, you can cross a street, can't you? Paul and Barnabas, they're they're the the first two to go on this mission field, and they found out how how hard it was to be a missionary. And I've heard it said that if you find your ministry to be very easy, maybe that's because you're not doing it right. Robert Bruce, he was a Scottish missionary to Iranian Muslims in the late 19th century. 
He wrote home to those who were supporting him. He said this. He said, quote, I am not reaping the harvest. I can scarcely claim to be sowing the seed. I'm hardly plowing the soil, but I am gathering out the stones. That too is missionary work. Let it be supported by loving, sympathy, and fervent prayer. You know, there are so many churches that are not growing because they're, they're not about the gospel. They're about so many other things than telling lost people about Jesus. You know, helping people, feeding people, clothing people. That, those are all very important things. But if they're being done at the expense of the gospel, then we've missed the mark. You know, God wants us to be faithful. God wants us to be fruitful. So reaping the harvest, sharing the gospel so that people will come to give their lives to Christ, that is being fruitful. Read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. The Word of God says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's what the heartbeat of the gospel is. The, the mission of the church, we would go out and tell people about Jesus. We are about to read a man, name of a man by the name of Mark. His full name is John Mark. He is also Barnabas' cousin. He's the same guy that wrote the gospel of Mark, and we've been reading about him in the book of Acts. Let's back up to Acts chapter 12, verse 25. It says, When Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, they had completed their service, bringing with them John whose other name was Mark. See, in Acts chapter 12, Paul and Barnabas were charged to, to go to Jerusalem to give some financial support to believers there. But on their way back, John Mark joins them. Then in Acts chapter 13, the, the sending church, Antioch, sends out uh, the dynamic duo Paul and Barnabas to, on this mission. But there must have been other believers with them. There must have been other guys like Dr. Luke and John Mark. Let's read about it in Acts 13, verse 4 and 5. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salmas, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So this is the mission trip we've been talking about, 1,600 miles. It was the first mission trip, but it was a huge one too. I have to think these guys are thinking, if we're going to go, let's go big. But look what happens in Acts 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is the part where John Mark, he leaves them in Perga. He, he makes an about face, and he goes back to Jerusalem. So I have a question. Why did he bail on Paul and Barnabas? We don't know. We don't know. But we do know that he missed out. He missed out on some really bad stuff. He missed out on stuff like persecution. He missed out on a stoning, a, a near-death experience. He missed out on fear. He missed out on exhaustion. He missed out. But he also missed out on some good stuff. He missed out on good stuff like God saving people. That's, a, that's really good stuff. He missed out on the, the Holy Spirit. He missed out on the joy of ministry and new friendships being formed. Strong ministry partners being forged through adversity. He missed out on pastors being trained. He missed out on churches being planted. And he missed out on the kingdom of God growing. That's what John Mark missed out on. And since now we're all caught up in the book of Acts where we left off, let's continue in Acts chapter 15, verse 35. It says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, 
teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who was called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take uh, with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went to Syria and to Cilia, strengthening the churches. So did you see what happened? What happened is Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's revisit the churches that, that we're planted. Let's go back and follow up with all those, those believers that, that came to faith in Jesus Christ over that 1,600 miles that we spent. Let's go to the entire eastern Mediterranean Sea and, and see how they're doing. I want to say this. this. I want to say this about Paul. He's a stud. I mean, this guy's not afraid of anybody. Because my question is, hey, Paul, you remember when they stoned you in Lystra? Are you going to go back and talk to those guys about Jesus too? And Paul's like, yeah, I'm going back there. You can't stop a man like Paul. He's going to go and take the gospel to, to people no matter what. But here's Barnabas. He wants to take John Mark, even though John Mark quit on him during their first trip. And then Paul says, no way. We're not taking John Mark. He's a mama's boy. He quit on us. And so these two giants of the faith, they're having a disagreement. So that brings me to my first point. Point number one. Believers can disagree with one another and still not sin. So here's the disagreement. Paul wants to take John Mark on the second trip. But the text says, but Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who withdrawn them from them in Pamphylia. Once you remember, Luke is writing this. And I think what's happening here is that Luke is being diplomatic. He's not giving every little detail about who might be right and who might be wrong. But Paul saw John Mark as a quitter. Paul was a guy, he, he said, you know, John's got a lot of quit in him. Okay, he, he doesn't have what it takes. He, he might not be made for ministry. And Barnabas is like, come on, man. He, I, I spoke up for you when you needed somebody. You see, Barnabas wanted to give Mark a second chance. Do you remember how Barnabas spoke up for, back then, the Saul of Tarsus when he needed a second chance? Read in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. It says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join, this is talking about Saul, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Barnabas is a guy that stuck his neck on the line for Paul. Remember in the not-too-distant past, then Saul of Tarsus, he was a man that was murdering Christians. He was throwing them in prison. He was a bounty hunter that was zealous to stamp out Christianity. I mean, Paul was a guy that was like Dog the Bounty Hunter, only he's hunting down Christians rather than criminals. But then something happened. It's found in that text. The, the believers have this mindset change. They went from fear to faith. 
You see, they weren't too sure that Saul of Tarsus was the real deal. But over time, their fear turned to faith. Here's what we should know. When we're around somebody long enough, eventually your perception changes and, and you begin to see them for who they truly are. And so here's the bait. The bait. Barnabas wants to take John Mark and Paul didn't. So who's right? Who's sinned? Is it Paul and Barnabas? Who, who's right? If you're team Paul, raise your hand. I see nobody. Team Barnabas, raise your hand. Okay, you have a couple. But here's the truth. We don't know. We don't know who's right. We're left hanging on this one. I mean, think through this. Here's Paul. He's a man who appeared to be strong. He's a man of convictions. He's a truth teller. He's very driven. But on the other hand, Paul could be seen as harsh, as cold, as lacking mercy and, and lacking grace. He could be seen as inflexible. But then there's Barnabas, and he seems so kind and sensitive and extending grace. He easily forgives somebody so very peaceful and accommodating. But on the other hand, Barnabas, he'd be seen as a pushover. He's lacking good judgment. He's definitely showing nepotism. He could be seen as a weak leader, as a people pleaser. But here's the deal. This is what I want us to see, is that godly men can still have disagreements. Because the Bible doesn't tell us who's right. The Bible doesn't tell us who's wrong. It does say that they separated over this. And Barnabas takes John Mark, and Paul takes Silas. And the dynamic duo suddenly becomes two unos. And these two unos, they had to find another ministry partner. I mean, these are men that that ran hard for God. They ran hard for God side by side in the, the trenches of ministry. And they experienced all the highs and lows together that you could possibly imagine while telling people about Christ. And now they seem to be parting ways over what looks to be like a small issue. Read Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two, extend grace to those who need a second chance. Don't miss Barnabas' actions here. He gives John Mark a second chance. And really, that tells us a lot about God. The God of the Bible, he delights in giving second chances Think about some of the second chances that that God gave in the Bible. There's a man named Abraham. He's the father of the Hebrew nation. He's the great man of faith, but yet he asked his wife Sarah to lie to the Egyptians to say that she's his sister to save his own neck. And then he stopped waiting on God and he listened to his wife and he took a girlfriend on the side to, to fulfill God's promises. But yet he was given a second chance. There's a man named Moses, and Moses murdered a man, but yet he was given a second chance, and then he has an anger issue, so really he's given a second and a third chance. He goes on to be used mightily by God. And there's King David. He, he, he committed adultery. He committed murder. He lied to the Jewish nation to, to cover up what he did, and then later on in his life, he's an absentee dad. David was a man that got a third and fourth chance, but later he he was used mightily by God. How about Jonah? Jonah's a racist prophet who didn't want to see the enemies of God receive God's mercy. And he receives a second chance, even though he resisted the second chance. He was still used mightily by God. And then there's Saul, who changed his name to Paul. He received a second chance. And so here, Barnabas wants to give John Mark a second chance. So question for you, ask yourself as you sit here, who in your life do you need to give a second chance to? 
if that person is genuinely repentant, extend a second chance to someone who might need it. Because guess what? We were all second chance people at some point in our lives. If you're a believer in Christ, if you place saving faith in Jesus Christ, you've been given a second chance. We'll extend that second chance to somebody else. But it's so easy to write somebody off. It's so easy to label them, to put a label that says, you're too far gone. You've made too many mistakes. I'm writing you off. But aren't we all glad that God delights in giving second chances? But here, Paul and Barnabas, they have a sharp disagreement. That's what the Bible says. This is no little skirmish. This is a big deal. Read in Acts 15, verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. So both of these men, they're they're mature, godly Christians who are serving God, and they have strong convictions and differing viewpoints. And we need to know that disagreements can fracture relationships. This disagreement was so severe that they parted ways. Barnabas took his cousin, John Mark, and Paul took Silas. You see, you can have strong opinions, but we all have to realize we can be wrong. Every single one of us, there's a possibility that there's an issue and that we're wrong. Only God has the corner on the market on being right all the time. And this is what we should do. Humble ourselves. Listen and learn from others and and cultivate this culture of truth and grace. Because if you're all truth and no grace, then you're going to be closed-minded and the deadly sin of pride begins to creep into our lives. And then if you're all grace and no truth, then you're a pushover and you won't be able to see the blind spots in your life. But if you're marked by both, both truth and grace, then you're like Jesus. You know, we aren't told the specifics of this sharp disagreement. But you know what? We're not told the specifics on how these two got back together either. Nearing the end of Paul's life, he writes 2 Timothy to his young protege, his son in the faith by the name of Timothy. And these are some of the very last words we have the Apostle Paul. Found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Paul says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in the love of this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Did you catch what Paul said there? He said, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me. You see, at some point, Paul and John Mark, they, they reconciled. They, they made up. They reunited. I can almost hear the music playing that old Peaches and Herbs song, Reunited. Anybody? Reunited and it feels so good. Nobody. I'm the only one. Thanks, guys. I really went for it that time, didn't I? I wasn't messing around. We're just singing it. Sometimes I pull back. No, that was everything I got. And I'm still not asked to be on the worship team. That's okay. But anyways, Barnabas, he's a man that invested in John Mark's life. I hope you, so J- Barnabas takes John Mark. He invests in John Mark. But now, at the end of Paul's life, Paul is reaping the dividends of what Barnabas had done. And you know what? That sounds like the Christian life to me. I can think of so many guys that, that poured into my life. They're giants in the, in the faith for me. And they invested in me, but for a number of different reasons, none of them sinful. We aren't in each other's lives anymore. 
Because people move, their jobs take them to different places on the earth, and we aren't in each other's lives anymore. I'm the Christian man, I am, because of somebody else, and now you all are reaping the benefits of what somebody else did. And there are people that I can think of that I poured my life into in the past for a number of different reasons, none of them sinful. They're not in my life anymore. Maybe their job took them somewhere else, but now someone else is reaping the benefits of of what I did many years ago. And again, that's the Christian life. We pour our lives into people. We, We benefit for a while, but not forever, at least not in this life. But then they move, and then someone else is going to benefit of the work you've done in someone else's life. It makes me think of youth ministry. In youth ministry, you can pour your heart and soul and mind into, into these youth, and at best, you have them for seven years. And then they move on. And hopefully, they take everything that you taught them over that seven years, and they take, it, take what you taught them to college, or they take what you taught them into a marriage, and then they, they start families, and then someone else is going to benefit from the work that you did. And again, that's the Christian life. Pouring into somebody else, and we benefit for a while, but then somebody takes what we taught them about Jesus, about the gospel, and then somebody else benefits. Let's keep reading. Pick it up in Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came down to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra, and I go... Excuse me. That doesn't happen all that time. Man, that one was a good one. Let me pick it up in verse... Let's go two. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew his father was Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for the observance, the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapter 15. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three, you will need to make sacrifices for the gospel. Did you catch what happened in Acts chapter 16? This is no little deal. Here's what happened. Paul goes to Derby and Lystra. He meets this young man by the name of Timothy. And this is the same Timothy that's the recipient of Paul's letter, First and Second Timothy. And young Timothy, he has a mama who is Jewish and a daddy who's Greek. And in verse 3, tells us that all the Jews in the area, they knew his dad was Greek. And thus, Timothy, they knew he's uncircumcised. So here's very likely what happened. That Paul goes to Derby and Lystra, he meets Tim, Tim hears the gospel, Tim gets saved. And then Paul pours his life into Timothy and disciples him. And at some point he says, hey, I want you to go share the gospel with all the unbelievers in your, in your hometown. But we've got a problem. And the problem is there's lots of Jews in Derby and Lystra. And these are the people that Tim is going to try to win to, 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 to Jesus. And so this is what happened. Paul says, hey, Timmy. We got an issue, and we each have a little procedure for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You're like, whoa, what's going on here? And I'm trying to be a mind reader here, so I've got one of two things you're probably thinking of. Here's the first thing you might be thinking of. Well, if you're going to go, uh, go and share the gospel, and this circumcision's a big deal, keep your pants on. 
And if that's what you're thinking, you're probably right, because you don't have to do that in order to share the gospel. But you never want to be a phony if you're going to be a soul winner. Okay? There is nothing that will turn an unbeliever off quicker than a phony Christian. Now, when I say phony, I mean the Christian that says all the right words, but down deep you just know there's something, they're not living the life. There's something about them that's just not matching up. The guy that looks the part so good, but yet there's just something not right about him, or the gal that seems so prim and proper and sweet, but yet they're just not living the life that they say. Now, remember, we're talking about circumcision here. And here are unbelievers that think the believers have to be circumcised, right? So this is what we need to do. They need to give the unbelievers what they want. Unbelievers need a a Christian that's genuine. If an unbeliever is going to look into our life and see something that they want that they don't have, namely Jesus, then we can't be doing something that leads them away from Christ. So that hopefully covers your first objection to Tim's circumcision. But here's the second thing. Maybe you're thinking, wait a minute. Okay, The circumcision debate was settled in the previous chapter. We called it the grace debate if you were here. Whether or not we were to add anything to the gospel, even circumcision. Again, that was settled in Acts chapter 15. And here we are one chapter later and we're at it again. Only this time it's the apostle Paul that seems to be putting something on somebody. Maybe you're also thinking, wait a minute, Pastor John. I read the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, it was the Apostle Paul that said, hey, if you want to circumcise yourself, go take it a step further and just cut the whole thing off. That's what Paul said. Fact check me if you want to. And here we are one one chapter later from chapter 15, and we're doing it again because back in chapter 15, All the who's who in the first century church came together. There was James, the half-brother of Jesus. There was Peter. There was Paul. And they said, hey, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles with with anything. It's going to be Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That was their decision. And here we are in Acts chapter 16, and it seems like Paul is is saying, you know what? You need to get circumcised. What's up with that, Paul? Here, I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is all about freedom. You're like, wait a minute. Freedom, that word doesn't mean what you think it means, if that's the word you mean. And let me tell you what, <laughs> what I'm talking about here. The Christian life is all about freedom. Because we have freedom in Christ to do so many things that the, that the world's religions say you can't do. But yet there's all these legalistic things that sometimes Christians put, try to put on other Christians that aren't the gospel. Let me tell you some, um, some, some really silly things that Christians say. There are sects of Christianity that say that Christians can't eat Lucky Charms. I'm talking about the breakfast cereal. Sugary breakfast cereal. There are Christians that say that we can't eat Lucky Charms because Lucky Charms is witchcraft. By eating Lucky Charms, you're supporting witchcraft. Here's what I'll say to that. That's ridiculous. (laughs) If you want to eat a sugary breakfast cereal, go ahead. I don't like them. I don't eat them. But if you want to, go ahead. Here's another one. Sometimes Christians say, well, Christians can't play cards because cards leads to gambling. Gambling is a sin, and so Christians can never play cards. Here's what I'll say to that. Again, ridiculous. Okay, If you want to play spades or hearts or rummy or whatever, go ahead. Cards have nothing to do with the issue. It's all about a heart issue. Okay, Christians have freedom to play cards if they want to or not. Again, it's the heart is at the core of the issue. Maybe somebody's sitting there and they're thinking, what about tattoos? 
Oh, yeah, I'm going to address that too. If you want one, go ahead. We have freedom in Christ to do that. The only thing I'll say is make really, really sure you want to have it for like forever because they're forever. But here's my favorite legalism one I've ever heard in my life. And this one's kind of a long story, but I think it's worth it. Years and years ago, I subbed for a good friend of mine. He, was, he taught a, a Sunday school class for senior adults, and he was out having surgery. He's going to be on it for like a long time. It was a very serious surgery. And since I'm going to be his sub for a couple months, I said, we're going to walk all the way through the book of Colossians. And then one day, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching. I don't remember where I was at in the book of Colossians. And I'm whiteboarding. I, said, I asked this very group of very seasoned senior adults. I said, give me some of the favorite taboos that we were told that Christians can never, can never do. And they gave me some of the typical answers, like no smoking, no drinking, no playing cars, no playing pool. But there was one little old lady. She told me one that I'd never heard before. And she said that her mom told her that good Christian girls can never ride a bike. I was like, what? Can't, I was dumbfounded. I didn't know what. I was like, what? And so she pulled me aside later and told me why. And if you want to know why, see me after church. And I'll do my best to tell you in private. But use your imagination. Here's my point in all that. This is all nonsense. We have freedom in Christ to ride a bike or play a cards. So we, we can do these things because it doesn't, it's not, doesn't depend on the gospel. And you're thinking, what in the world does it have to do with Timothy getting circumcised? And here I am, I'm saying it's all about freedom. Well, when Christians talk about freedoms, usually 99 times out of 100, we're talking about what we get to do. I'm talking about the one percenters. I'm talking about what we get to give up. You see, I have freedom in Christ to do whatever I want, but I choose to give up my rights for the sake of the gospel. Here's my Acts chapter 16 story. Okay, this is how this affected me. Years and years ago, before I got saved, I am not a saved man at the beginning of the story. I used to drink alcohol, okay? And then came the night, I went out one night with my friends and came, woke up the next day, and I was hurting bad. And I said, I'm never doing this again. Anybody love having the flu? Anybody? I see no hands. Because your head hurts, it feels like someone's standing on your head. You're pretty sure you're going to throw up at any moment, and you can't leave the house for like a day because the, you need the bathroom. Everybody love that feeling? Nobody. Me neither. So I said, I'm never drinking again. Uh, this is gone. This is stupid. I'm not doing this ever again. And you know what? I meant it. And I never had another sip of alcohol. And remember, I'm an unsaved man. I don't know Jesus. But on occasion, I would have a non-alcoholic beer. Okay? Well, and then came the day I got saved. I heard the gospel. I, I recognize I'm a sinner. I turn from my sins. I trusted in Christ, but I would still have on occasion a non-alcoholic beer. Well, then I realized, wait a minute. All my friends are not saved. Like all my friends and the, the guys I ran with, none of them are going to heaven. And if they died tonight, well, these guys that I cared for deeply, they would go to hell. And so I set out to try to win my friends to Christ. And almost every opportunity, I'd be trying to share the gospel or invite them to church or do something like that. And I'm still drinking non-alcoholic beer. And one night, I'm sipping on a non-alcoholic beer. And one of my, my friends, one of my very best friends said, Hey, I thought you were a Christian. I immediately knew what he meant. And so I turn, I show him, No, it's non-alcoholic beer. And he said, Oh, okay. Then I thought to myself, Wait a minute. Had this been into a, a glass... And I said, oh, it's non-alcoholic. He was said, yeah, right. And he thought I was lying. So you know what I need to do? I need to give up non-alcoholic beer. I can't drink non-alcoholic beer because it hurts my witness. Now, I have the freedom of Christ to have one if I want. 
but I choose to give up my rights to help the gospel. Okay? And that's the last time, I've, and that was more than decades ago, that I had anything that even resembled an alcoholic drink. Why? Because I want my friends to come to Jesus. And if there's anything that hurts that, I have the right to give it up. Enter Acts chapter 16. Timothy, he's going to attempt to win all the Jews in Derby and Lystra to Jesus. Now, if being circumcised is a hindrance to them coming to Jesus, then go ahead and take care of it. Because it helps his witness. That's what's going on here. So if Paul and Timothy take this witnessing that seriously, we should too. They went to the nth degree to make sure they didn't hurt their witness, right? So here's how this works out for us. If there's anything that hurts our witness, we have the freedom in Christ to give it up. And again, this is not about legalism, okay? I'm saved. I'm going to heaven when my time comes. And God has given me this amount of time to try to take as many people with me to heaven as I possibly can. And if there's anything in my life that hurts that, I have the freedom of Christ to let it go. To set that aside to help share the gospel with somebody. You know, if you were to walk down our street, just walk down Bighorn Avenue, walk up to your average unbeliever and say, hey, tell me about a Christian. What do you think a Christian's like? This is what they'll say. They'll say, well, Christians don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, and they don't go with girls who do. Something along that lines, right? That's what they'll say. You know what we should do? Then give them that picture. We shouldn't do any of those things because it hurts our witness. Again, we have the freedom to live however we want, but we also have the freedom to set those rights aside for the sake of the gospel. So here's some application for us. Here's the big idea that we can take away from, from this text. Four points of application based off of what we've talked about here today. Here's application point number one. Number one, the Christian life is hard. Choose to live it anyways. Being a real deal Christian, it's not easy, okay? Because we, we have freedom in Christ to do whatever, but we also have the freedom to, to go to somebody, and, and it's going to be hard. Hard to share the gospel. Hard to live the Christian life genuinely. Choose to live it anyways. Here's application number two. Believers, believers can disagree and still not sin. Work through it. Do what you have to do to work through it. Here's number three. We need to extend grace to those who need a second chance. Is it easy? No, it's not. But in the end, it's worth it. Here's the last one. Here's fourth piece of application. If you're going to live the Christian life to the fullest, then there's things you must be willing to sacrifice. And often the sacrifices that we need to make are some of our freedoms we have in Christ. And again, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. God has entrusted with to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to take that message to lost people. Now, if you're asking yourself, well, what's the gospel? I'm glad you asked that question. I try to finish, end every service with a very clear gospel presentation. Here it is. We're all sinners. Every single one of us. We've all done the thing and act and deed and, and thought that we shouldn't do. and We didn't do the things we should done, and that's called sins and transgressions. And because of that, we're separated from God. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. No amount of being good can ever undo the sin or pay for the sins of our past or of our presence or our future. That's why God took on human flesh. His name's Jesus. 
And he came to the earth and he lived the perfect life. And he went to the cross and he died, not for what he has done, but what you and I have done. And if we place our faith in him, then God sees us as, a, as he does his son. And we're saved. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So if you've never called on the name of Jesus Christ to save you, I'd encourage you to do that right here and do it right now. To pray a, a prayer that says something along the lines of, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And my sin, it separates me from you. But yet, even though I was a sinner, when I was at my lowest, Lord, you still loved me. Lord, save me from my sins. I want you more than my sins. I turn, I repent, I give my life to you. Save me, Lord Jesus. And I see this in your holy, precious name. Amen.